This is Judges chapter 3, verse 12. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and he went to defeat Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, for 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel (laughs) sent tribute to him, to Eglon, king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And Ehud had finished presenting the tribute. He sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal, and he said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded, Silence. And all the attendants went out of his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in the cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat, and Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and they saw the doors of the roof chamber locked, so they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord, dead on the floor. And Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. And when he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And they said, and he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him, and they seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites, and they did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong and able-bodied men. Not one man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. So uh, as we've been working through Judges so far, we've discussed some of the realities on the ground is that uh, as Westerners, uh, there are certain books of the Bible that we're tempted to tuck away and hide kind of in the corner in the darkness because we just don't quite know what to do with them. And so one of the reasons why we picked Judges uh, a while ago is because I think it's one of those books that lends itself to us ignoring the stories and trying to keep them at arm's length. Uh, we like to stay in sanitized passages that seem to have less problems for us, like the epistles and things like that, that more deal with morality and general things. But uh, when it comes to someone ordained by God to go and then slaughter people, and then that being described in graphic detail, I think we have, as Westerners, we have a lot harder of a time with that. Um, so nevertheless, we're going to not shy away from the total uh, understanding of Scripture because we, we believe, uh, as Paul writes, that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. And so we're not going to shy away from it just because we're not exactly sure what to do with it. And the ambition tonight is that you'll have a better grasp on this text so that you know what to do with it going forward. And hopefully this can um, uh, uh, enhance your study a little bit uh, in Judges. So um, that being said, uh, one of the things that I'm going to put on the front end of this text is this question for you as we, as we move through it, which is, can God work in the messiness of our sin? That's the question, right? 
the fundamental question is, in the messiness of sin, in the messiness of that slavery and that idolatry, that situation, is God able to work in that messiness? And I, I think this story addresses really that baseline question. So looking at verse 12 and uh, 14, we're going to see first and foremost the familiar pattern that we've seen before. Verse uh, 12 says, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And we would waste time going back, but if you look back, there's probably three or four other instances where you see this exact phrase being used in both chapter 1 and chapter 2 in the book of Judges. In fact, in chapter 2, we see it introduced as the general pattern, and we saw it last week with Othniel. The people again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And remember, the key phrase there is they do what's evil in the sight of God, right? Because they're doing what they think is right in their own eyes, but they're doing what's evil according to God's standard. And that's what's important. It doesn't matter that they think it's right. It matters that God says it's not right. So they do what's evil inside the Lord, and the Lord strengthens Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel. So God is the one who's responsible for raising up this foreign king to then go and enslave the people of Israel. We can think of a, a text um, like uh, Exodus 9, where God says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, right? That even wicked kings are tools in the hands of God. God controls the full a range of human history, even in a wicked king like king, the king of the Moabites here, who's going to then enslave and oppress the people of Israel. So God moves, he raises up this king, and, it, and it, just in case we missed it the first time, because remember, we're going to be offended by everything else that happens in this text. The next thing that he says is, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So he's just underscoring that truth, that they, they're in full deserving uh, status of whatever comes next. There, there's nothing else that they deserve to do. And the basic premise of this, if you uh, skip down to verse 14, it says, And the people of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. And this harkens back to a bunch of the promise and uh, uh, the covenant blessings and curses that you see. But this one uh, that I, I found comes out of Deuteronomy 28. And the basic premise of that promise is, If you won't serve me, then you can go serve your enemies. That's, that's the basic curse. It's, if you serve me, I will be faithful to you. But if you're not going to serve me, then you can go ahead and serve your enemies. That's uh, out of Deuteronomy 28, uh, verses 47 and 48, is where you see that arm of the promise. And so uh, what's interesting to note as well is we, we talked uh, when we were in chapter 1 about the reversal. So at first Israel is conquesting the land, and then they start settling and not overtaking the people. And then there's this reversal that happens where the, the people actually get driven back for a time. And this now is the second time we see such a reversal. Because here it says in verse 13, that the, uh, that the king of Moab takes away the city of Palms from them. And if you remember back in chapter 1, they capture the city of Palms. That's actually Jericho. They, they go into the promised land. One of the first things they do in Judges is capture the city of Palms. And now we're seeing that their depravity has gone so far away from them that now they're losing one of these core cities that God has promised to them. And it says, uh, so, so we've seen this pattern before. That's the whole point. So the, the first uh, section right there, that first little paragraph, verses 12 to 14, kind of, uh, is a commentary on everything else that's going to happen next. And actually, that commentary extends into verse 15, because verse 15 tells us what God does in response to their, their cries, right? It says, once again, they cry out to the Lord, and we shouldn't understand that being that they repent, right? We've, we've discussed this before. Just because it says they cry out, that doesn't mean that they're repentant of what they do. They just don't like the circumstances that also come along with their sin, right? As you'll see before, they love their sin. They continue to return to it. They just don't like the consequences of their sin. So they're going to cry out about that. And God, being compassionate, even though they're in full, um, he's fully just for what he's doing, 
will still raise up for them a deliverer. Or as I pointed out last week, that could also be interpreted as a savior. He raises up for them a savior. In this case, savior is Ehud or Ehud. And he is, uh, we're told he's the son of Gera. He's a Benjamite and he is a left-handed man. And as that, that's going to become uh, pretty important later in this text. Um, but first, I, I would like to point out something that one of the commentators said. They said, of all the ways that the narrators of this text could have introduced Ehud to us, you know, as, as Westerners, we read this and we go, Ehud is a murderer, he's an assassin, he's a deceiver, he's a liar. The, the guy who writes Judges says he's the savior of the people. So he, he chooses his language carefully. He doesn't call him a murderer, he doesn't call him an assassin. He says he's the savior of the people of God, that God wrote, raised up for the purpose of delivering them. And I think that's pretty important because this is how God views what's happening next. God is, God is providing commentary through this author about all the events that follow. And that's helpful to us because everything else that happens, we just get the recorded events as they happen, right? We don't know if Ehud's telling the truth, if this message is really from God or not, unless we have this commentary beforehand that God raised up Ehud for this purpose. That colors in the rest of the text for us. So that's, that's that familiar pattern. And then we're going to see uh, in, verse, uh, in this next section the well-executed plan that Ehud is going to kind of devolve. But to understand the plan, we have to understand who Ehud is and what he's all about. So it says he's a Benjamite. Uh, if you were to survey all the tribes of, uh, of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin is the youngest tribe. They're, they're, actually, Benjamin is the youngest of the sons of Jacob. And he, he's, he's so young, in fact, that his father is super protective of him. And when he, his father is blessing him, he gives him this really interesting promise in Genesis uh, 49. And if you want to flip there with me, I'd like to look at that promise. Or it's a, it's a prophecy. Genesis 49, and it's just one verse. It's verse 27. It's a prophecy about what the people of Benjamin are going to be like. So Genesis uh, 49 is this whole series of prophecies. But if you look specifically at verse 27, it's the very last one in that uh, poetic stanza. It says, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. Now, if you're not familiar with poetic language, that might come off as you don't really know what he's talking about. If you, if you look at the rest of the testimony of the historical books, the tribe of Benjamin is well known for its, its warriors. In fact, the tribe of Benjamin produces warriors like King Saul, the first king of Israel, who is chosen specifically because he's tall, because he's, he's mighty in military uh, status. And so the tribe of Benjamin produces and is well known for these warriors. In fact, if we get to the end of the book of Judges, which we'll get there eventually, in Judges 20, there's this, there's this skirmish, civil war, between the, just the tribe of Benjamin and the entire rest of the nation of Israel. And the tribe of Benjamin is in the wrong in this case, but in that instance, they kill uh, tens of thousands of Israelites, and there's only like a couple hundred of them. So they're mighty warriors. And something else that is worth noting, in the book of Chronicles, in chapter 12, it, we give an, it gives an account of all of the, the mighty men of, of Israel. And it specifically notes that of the tribe of Benjamin, they were ambidextrous fighters, meaning they could fight with both their left and right hand, which is important in close quarters combat, because if someone squares off to, against you and you're not familiar with their fighting style, they have a better chance of beating you in a fight. So the tribe of Benjamin can use both their left and their right hands, and they're, they're accurate with the sling. So they're, they're well known for being warriors, or as uh, their father predicted, they're ravenous wolves. They're, they're vicious. That doesn't mean they have a moral compass. You're going to see that in the, at the end of the book of Judges. But they're, they're warriors. And so Ehud kind of falls in this bloodline 
of fighters. And so that's important for us to know because one of the key details is that he is a left-handed man and that colors in the plan that he has. So his plan is he's going to conceal carry a dagger that's about a foot and a half long, 18 inches. That's a cubit. And he's going to hide it under his tunic. And the reason it's important that he's left-handed or that he can use his left hand is because they would have typically searched on the opposite side for any kind of weapon. So as they're bringing in this tribute to the king, they would have looked on the left-hand hip because if you're a right-handed person, you would draw from your left hip any kind of sword or weapon. And so he hides it on the opposite side where no one's going to check. And at this point, it's not well known that the Israelites have these left-handed warriors from Benjamin. In fact, it, it seems to us in this text that no one else in his, in his committee or his party is aware of what he's about to do because he sends them all away and then he turns back and goes to carry out his task. So the plan is he's going to go to the king, he's going to bring the tribute or the tax that uh, the king Eglon has on the people. And then uh, he's going to send the people away and he comes back and he's going to get the king on his own. And so to get the king on his own, he says, I have a secret message for you, O king. And as we're, we're building in the moral problems here, uh, one of the things that you can ask is, is it right that Ehud used the tactic of deception in this case to get uh, King Eglon alone? And to answer that, I'm just going to give you a few references. We're not going to explore them in full because we can talk about them in a little bit. Um, but the first one uh, is a reference to Jehu. Jehu is one of the judges, or he's one of the kings of Israel, who's responsible for reforming the people after Ahaz and Jezebel. And what Jehu does that's of worthy, of worthy note, it actually comes with like a hint of approval, is he says, I want you to gather all the prophets of Baal in the land. I want you to get them all here. We're going to have a big Baal worshiping festival. And he gets all the prophets of Baal there. He says, search them all. Make sure there's no one among the prophets of Israel here. And they say, no, there's no, there's no prophets, no worshipers of Yahweh here. There's only prophets of Baal. And then he says, great, lock the doors, kill all of them. And if any of you lets any of them out, your life is on your hands. And in doing so, he successfully ends the Baal worship cult for a period of years. So he uses the tactic of deception, like a fake, uh, a fake uh, sacrifice ritual. And he, he uses that as an effective means to end cult worship uh, from the Baal cult. Another instance of this, so that, that happens after this event. The one that happens though before this is worthy of note as well, which is Rahab, the prostitute. And, she, and we are told in the book of Hebrews that Rahab, through faith, believed in God and, and, and believed in the promise and her faith was enacted in the fact that she deceived the soldiers of Jericho and hid the soldiers of Israel and that she allowed them to escape. And that we're told in Hebrews is a, is a sign or a symbol of her faith. And what's difficult for us is that's deception. She lied to these other soldiers uh, to let the people of Israel in. So I just want to put those in front of you. We can talk more about that later, but just because it's deception doesn't automatically mean it's sinful is the point. Okay. And so he deceives this king, he gets him on his own. The king bites. The king is so foolish, he bites and he goes, he goes for it because he's not scared of the Israelites. And it says that he, he sends all his bodyguards out. He sends his servants aside, which would have included his military guard. And then Ehud gets even closer to him and he says, I have a message of God for, for you. And when he says that, uh, King Eglon gets up, he stands up, and now he's a perfect target because we're told that he was, he's, a, he's a large man. He's a, he's a particularly large man, so it's going to be hard for Ehud to miss. And Ehud does not miss. In fact, he thrusts the sword so hard into King Eglon that the sword completely disappears. We're talking about an 18-inch blade, hilt and all, gone into him. So if you want like, you know, an R-rated scene or an R-rated fight, fight scene in, in scripture, here it is. There's, there's some parts that you should not uh, turn into children's books. And this is one of them. Um, and again, uh, we could think about this as, you know, is, is Ehud in the right to say that this is a message from God, that the message is 
uh, this reign is over and I am, you know, the, the hand of God, as you will, uh, to, to end your reign. There's, there's another cross-reference that I would like to turn to just briefly, just for a moment, which is in Numbers 25. In Numbers 25, we find a, another character who has a similar kind of um, situation. So in Numbers 25, just to set the scene for you, the whole chapter is about this instance of uh, Baal worship with the Israelites uh, with Moses on the table. And so it says, I'm just going to start reading. It says, while Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. And these invited the people to sacrifice to their gods. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked itself with Baal of Peor. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So he's saying that there's some people who are guilty, the leaders, and they need to be killed. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, so these are the, the military warriors, each of you kill those men who have yoked themselves to Baal Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel, so this is while this meeting is happening, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So they're having this meeting to consider how are they going to deal with this problem, God's wrath burning against them. And as this is happening, one of the leaders who Moses just indicated is, is actively bringing uh, a woman who's, who's not an Israelite woman just into his tent, into his, into his house. And Phinehas, this is verse 7, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, saw it. He rose, left the congregation, and took a spear in his hand, and he went after the man of Israel into the chamber, and he pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through their belly. So he, he skewers them together. It says, Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. And when you, when you try to understand commentary on this text, you just have to read a little bit further to see what was God's view of this. The Lord says to Moses, this is verse 10, uh, sorry, verse 10, and then verse 11 says, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel in that he was jealous for my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore, I say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him in the covenant of the perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and he made atonement for the people of Israel. So this is Phinehas killing people, and that killing of these people is considered justified in that God gives a thumbs up to what just happened, right? So I, I, I'm giving that in context because we can't just dismiss Ehud killing uh, Eglon and say that Ehud is, is in the wrong for committing violence because we have instances in the text where that's not necessarily true. Now, we're not given commentary necessarily like we are in that instance about what is God's direct response. We're just given the follow-up narrative. So I want, you, I want you to look again in the text with me, and you're going to see the providential escape that Ehud uh, gets to partake in. So after he, after he kills Eglon, he closes the door, he locks it, and then he escapes. And then sometime later, the servants return, and you'll see they come to the chamber, and the chamber's locked, and they think, surely he is relieving himself. And the reason they think that is because it smells terrible. Remember, when he gets stabbed, his, his guts come out, right? It says the dung came out. And if you've ever been in surgery, if you've ever worked in a hospital... This, does, this is not something you need to imagine. Uh, this is something you might have smelled before. Uh, it's, it can get very, uh, very graphic and very uh, smelly. So they think that he is relieving himself, that he's using the bathroom. And so they don't go in. And they wait 
as long as possible until they say, I mean, this is a really long time. And then, <laughs> and so then they're, they're just going to say, okay, we're going to go for it. Because you can imagine he's their king. So if they walk in on him, like with his pants down, he, he could probably have them killed. So they're going to they're gonna wait, wait, wait. And then they call, probably call to him. He's not answering. So they go ahead and they unlock the door. They get the key and they find him just face down dead. And it says in verse 26, Ehud escaped while they delayed. And we shouldn't consider this as dumb luck from Ehud. This is God's providence getting Ehud out. So Ehud did what he was supposed to do, and now he gets out, and God is kind of overseeing and orchestrating the rest of these events, which we would consider luck or chance or whatever else, but this is clearly God's hand at work because he gives Ehud enough of a, of a means of escape where he can get the people of Israel, rally them together, and then they're going to cut off the Moabite army before the Moabite army can make an escape. And you, you see they cut them off, and then you have this decisive victory that happens where Israel cuts off the Moabites and they kill 10,000 of their, their warriors. And it, we're told in one single day, they completely end the, the oppression of the Moabite people on Israel. Now, there are wars that are fought that are relatively short. It's very rare for one day of a revolt to completely terminate the, the opposing or the occupying power. So it, it just shows you that God's hand is clearly with the people of Israel. This is not a human campaign, a human revolt. This is clearly God at work through Ehud, through the people of Israel to provide deliverance. And so in that, uh, we're told that the land now has rest for 80 years. And what I want to do, just briefly note, is looking back at the story of Othniel and looking forward at this story, uh, you'll notice in the story of Othniel, it says that they, they, when they sin against God, he puts them in slavery for nine years. Okay? And then he delivers them and he delivers them and they have peace for 40 years. And in this text, when they, when they sin against God, they're delivered up for 18 years, so a doubling of that time. And then when, they're, uh, when they get their peace, they're now at peace for 80 years, so a doubling of the peace. And so what you're seeing is God is giving them even more, uh, even more opportunity or more grace even in their sin. So he, he gives them, yes, a harder punishment, but also a much longer period of rest, double the timeline of rest that they get. Uh, but again, it's probably worth pointing out that this is an incomplete salvation because even at the end of 80 years, if you just glance forward two verses in the text to chapter four, verse one, it says, and the people of Israel again, did was evil in the sight of the Lord. So this is not a permanent reform. This does not permanently turn their hearts back to God. This is a temporary means of salvation. And in all of this, we can ask the question, like, what do we do with this text of scripture? What do we do with Ehud? What do we do with the messiness of it? What do we do with the graphic violence and the gore and all that stuff? Um, and I think the, the text is there for us to, to answer the question, um, what uh, is God like for us when we're caught in our sin and the messiness of it? Is there a clean escape for Israel that doesn't involve this kind of battle-like engagement with the Moabite people? To, to think of another situation or circumstance where this is true, it, when Israel is enslaved in Egypt, uh, to get Israel out of Egypt requires that all of the firstborn of the Egyptians die. So God can clearly get down into the mud of the people of Israel and he can clearly save them and rescue them out of their dire situation. And he seems to be able to do that, as Paul says in Romans 8.28, he can, he can work all things together. He, he can do it with everything. So he doesn't just rely on the things that look for us nice and sanitized, which is good news for us because oftentimes we're not in a sanitized state when we most need God's help. And that means God can get into your life when you're in a messy situation and he can help you out of that situation. And he does so providentially through the, both the good and the bad things of that situation. 
And, it, and that's good news for us because all the other gods of all the other religions would say that you need to clean yourself up first before you come to God. And God says fundamentally he can get on his hands and knees and he can get down in the dirt with us and he can drag us out and clean us up along the way. That's fundamentally the promise of God. That's what he does to the people of Israel. We see that when Jesus gets, when we see, meet Jesus in the New Testament, he's first and foremost revealed to be God incarnate into human flesh. And we're told that that is him condescending and to take on the form of a human. He gets into the mess of humanity in order to rescue humanity. And all of that is part of God's divine plan of salvation. So it's a good thing for us that God can get into our mess because we are in, in a mess when we need God most. And that means we don't need to clean ourselves up to get to God. God helps us clean up. And so when you're in a mess or when you're in a situation where you need repentance, you need to be like the Israelites when they say, when they cry out, when they, when they cry out in their desperation and look at God's faithfulness, even without full repentance, he delivers them, you know, and, and the hope would be that that eventually does lead to repentance, right? Scripture tells us that his kindness is meant also to lead us to repentance. So in his deliverance, it should lead us to more obedience, more faithfulness. But even without that, he, he's still so faithful and so good that he'll deliver the people. And all of that goes to show that despite the messiness of this text of scripture, despite all like the, the moral problems and the questions we bring to the text, the thing that the author is clearly emphasizing, he's not trying to address the moral problems of the text. He's not trying to clear up for us what exactly is Ehud's deal, what did he do that was good, what did he do that was bad. What he's clearly emphasizing is God is able to work in the messiness of the Ehud situation, in the messiness of this story, and decisively create a victory for the people of Israel. And that's, I think that's a really cool story. It's a really cool through line because as we get in, deeper into the book of Judges, you're going to see messier and messier judges go. Actually, we're going to peak in about two weeks with Deborah, and then it's just going to be straight downhill from there. <laughs> um, and so it's a good thing that early on we get to see the picture of God working in the mess because that is the whole story of the rest of Scripture with the kings, with the prophets, with Israel's continued apostasy, and even into the New Testament when we meet the, we, when we meet the people of Israel and Jesus rescues them at that moment in time. Um, so that being said, uh, let me close in prayer and then we can open it up for discussion. Father God, I thank you for your word that is inspired, that is life-giving, um, that is as current today as it was when it was written thousands of years ago, that it is profitable for our souls, uh, that we can learn from it. Lord, we pray that we would be able to sit at the feet of your scriptures and learn them and internalize them and uh, through them get a glimpse as to who you are, and that that would radically transform how we live our lives. Lord, we know that we worship a big God, and uh, we pray that we would be reminded of that every time we approach the text of Scripture. Lord, I thank you for your grace to us to help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear what's in this text. And I pray that as we continue our conversations tonight, that they would be glorifying to you, and that we would be able to uh, discern truth and to uh, apply it, um, and to wrestle uh, with your word in a way that is uh, edifying and uh, that, that gives life to your people. We ask all these things in your precious name. Amen.